back with you for another quarantine edition of the Forest Hills Tennis Podcast. I'm Noah Wolf with Luke Jensen. Our guest today is a former world number one, eight-time Grand Slam champion. In 1980, he was part of the Davis Cup winning Czech team, and he was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 2001. Ivan Lendl, welcome to the Forest Hills Tennis Podcast. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Ivan, one of the things, this is such a thrill for me because, I mean, you were right, right with Borg, McEnroe Connors is starting to take over the game. And you were one of the guys that really took the game to the next level with science, the training, the technology with the, the strings, the rackets, all of it. Talk about that process. Well, look, uh, I always like to do things as well as I can. So any detail is not not too small to look at and then you just make uh, then you just make educated decisions okay i can improve here i can improve in these so many places but i have time only for three out of seven or so which three will improve me the most it's like in coaching right when you coach you look at the player and you see many many places you need to work with them but some of them are just not going to pay enough dividend uh, for how much time you have to spend. So if you have a very good player who has a bad overhead, and but he still wins most of the points by hitting high forehand volley or shanking one and still winning it, if you spend 20 minutes a day on it, it's just way too much time for one point every two matches. And uh, that, that's how I looked at my game and uh, tried to improve on and off the court uh, as much as I could. But where did that come from? Because I look at your parents were very accomplished tennis players. And when I look at the Czech system from Drobny and Jan Kodish, of course, Navratilova, it really is amazing how many great players. I mean, you guys are Hall of Famers. But even the tier below, Schmidley and all the other guys who are even today are in the doubles, are in the you know, top 20, top 50, top 100 singles. Where did that come from, that perfectionist mindset? Well, I was very fortunate to watch players at my club where I grew up uh, and observing them. I used to ball boy, then I was a lines person or empire and so on and so on. And you just watch and learn. And uh, I'm very fortunate to have good memories. So I remember things I can analyze reasonably well. So I have, I have seen people who didn't have much talent work hard on their weaknesses and trying to improve. Uh, uh, one guy, uh, he was number one player at our club, and I will never forget that. He was number one player at our club. Uh, maybe he was 20 in the country, and he had terrible serve. He would double for 10, 15, even more times a match. But every night during the week, he would be there hitting serves. And me as a little kid, I, I was very grateful that I was able to go on the other side and either serve the balls back or try to return them, right? But what it taught me is you just have to go and work at it. And the man then ended up in top 10 in Czech Republic at uh, one time. And so you, you could see that the hard work pays off. Even you're truly a student of the game. And I just find it so interesting to hear how you really learn just by watching, being a ball boy, a lines, a lines person. And one thing is just your playing style. You really revolutionized the game as far as bringing the aggressive baseliner style to the forefront. 
Now, was that something that you developed over time or was that just how you learned how to play from the, from the get-go? No, I know that's not how I played. I actually played serve and volley uh, most of the first serves and sometimes even second serves in the juniors. But uh, in 1978, I was 18 years old and there is a guy called Jose Luis Clerc, an Argentinian, and he started having success with hard forehands, hard backhands, hard first serve. And he's only two years older than me, so he was 20 at that time. And he just won in Florence. And I had got a wild card into the French Open and drew him first round and he absolutely destroyed me. Three love and three, something like that. But I observed him because he was, uh, as I said, a couple of years older. So he was a little ahead of me in the, in the curve. And, and I wanted to see how he plays. And he played power game. Uh, Jose Luis wasn't the greatest mover, he didn't have the greatest touch, but he got a lot out of his game through power. And I said, if I can get that power and add other elements to it, I could be pretty good. It's crazy to me to see that. I mean, just watching a lot of old footage of you playing, you really seemed like you were punishing those forehands and backhands. Yeah, it's, uh, that was aggressive baseline. And, uh, I think in every era you have players playing the way the conditions allow. If courts are fast and balls are fast, you see a lot of serving and volleying. If uh, you have slower courts and uh, more uh, aggressive string for top spins, you see a lot of guys just hitting a lot of top spin and punishing people that way. And in our era, you were able to be aggressive baseliner. That seemed to be uh, the way you could play. But Ivan, you were smart. You're tactical on so many different levels. And a lot of people will point to your breakthrough in 84, winning at the French Open, down against Macron, that gutsy performance there. But from really following you, and I was just kind of playing juniors then and, and really following your game, I believe it was 85 U.S. Open final. McEnroe gets off to a fast start against you, gets up an early break, is really holding serve easily. Late in that first set, you found something. Like, you just became dangerous. And it almost looked like you never looked back. Like, you retired McEnroe in that match. He was never the same player. Would you agree to that? If you go to that 85 U.S. Open final, like, you started returning and ripping shots and aiming at the net, man. I thought that was a brilliant strategy that revolutionized and basically made the serve and volley player extinct. Look, uh, th there are many points you just made, so I will try to uh, go one after another. Uh, both of those matches were very similar in, in a way because in both instances, John had a very good year and he was, uh, he was actually uh, beating me a couple of times before. He beat me in 84, he beat me at Forest Hills and he beat me at... Uh, Nations Cup in uh, Düsseldorf and in 1985 uh, actually he was uh, he had another great year and uh, we played uh, we played a couple matches in the summer and John beat me and so on and so on and in both matches he also started fast he was two sets up in uh, at the French and he was 5-2 uh, up at the US Open Finals in 1985 and uh, the other point you made that uh, a lot of people point to the French uh, as my breakthrough. And I always say, yeah, 
but uh, I still believe, and I always did that. If I didn't win there, then my time still would come because I would. Oh, for uh, sure. I would put myself in position to win others. People don't see it that way. I disagree with them, but that's okay. That's why we. I disagree. No, no, no. You're winning way before. You're the seven. You're the number one junior in '78. In '80, you're winning titles. You win Davis Cup. You're part of the Davis Cup winning team for the Czechoslovakia team. I mean, there was destiny within your game. Yes, but they, they're pointing to the French Open as being the breakthrough in winning majors. And my point is, I think, or I strongly believe, then and now, that I still would win my share of majors had I not won that match in Paris. Agreed. Uh, on, on the other hand, I think, and John refers to it all the time, that it's one of the worst defeats in his career. And it's, to me... Many times, it, or to me, it's really sad, actually, because you should be defined by what you have won, not by what you have lost. Mm -hmm. And I think John, to some extent, has to deal with the fact that he lost that French. And you love it. You love it. I, I love it. Just no, talks no, no, really? No, no. I, I mean, you guys were no. bitter rivals. Yeah, yes, we were. Yes, we were. But uh, I think uh, you... You also have, even though you don't, you, you don't show it while you play, you also have heart. And you understand the disappointment and the, the uh, I don't even know what the word would be, of that, the weight of that defeat. You, you do understand that. And uh, we all want to win, don't get me wrong. Of course, we all want to win. But uh, that, that, has, that one had to be tough for John. But do you feel the same way about your Wimbledon runs? Actually, it's really interesting that uh, that's another misconception, I believe, or, or not being on the same page. My Wimbledon record, the way the grass courts played at the time, mm -hmm. and the way I had to change my game and play with the weakest part of my game against the strongest part of my opponent's games, uh, being in the semis uh, seven times and made two finals out of it in eight years, uh, I'm very, very proud of that record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just go back to that 1984 French Open. And this is just a little touched on fact, but you lost those first four Grand Slam finals before breaking through, through an 84. And I'm just curious, down two sets against McEnroe, your bitter rival, what was your mindset at that point? It's just fascinating to hear you say that oh, you didn't really think too much about losing at the time. Yes. Uh, well, the third set was the pivotal set. Uh, John kind of lost his focus a little bit. And it gave me a chance to win the third set. Then in the fourth and fifth, uh, because it was fairly warm in Paris that day. And I felt that my conditioning was better than John's. And then he got a head break in the fourth. And I was very fortunate to win that set. But in the fifth, we were toe to toe. And I was kind of getting annoyed because I felt stronger than John. And uh, we were three or four or five all, and I wasn't able to break through until the last point. And, uh, you know, as you, as you said, uh, from, the third set, from the fourth set on, I felt uh, that uh, I had a very good chance. So one, I mean, I'm just, I love going back to those matches because you can just see your determination that you can see your mind, your weapon is just like trying to figure this out. You're trying to figure out his game and that leftiness and all that stuff. It, it was just so much fun. And 
one of the things we do at, at, at Westside Tennis Club is we have a match of the week. Now, normally, I would have said your double bagel against Connors at Forest Hills, and I want to talk about that, but we're trying to get Connors on the show. So I wasn't going to put that as match of the week because there's no way. humiliate him. <laughs> exactly. But tell me about double bageling Connors. Well, let, let me back up a little bit to that match in Paris. Uh, if you watch sure. the match, you see on the match point, John missed a relatively easy forehand volley and pushed it wide up. And, yep. Okay, inside out wide. And uh, when I was working with juniors at USTA, they did cuts from that match and showed the uh, showed uh, them to everybody and so on. And we talked about certain situations in the match and uh, doing these things. And a few games earlier, there was a very similar situation where John hit that serve out wide, came to the net, had the same volley, hit it deep to my forehand, and I ran there and hit a top spin off over his head. I did not remember that. But then when they, when they showed that, I understood why John missed that easy volley because that point from earlier on was still in his mind and he didn't want that to happen again. And he overcooked it, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so he, he pushed a little too hard and missed. And that's what you talk about uh, when you talk about uh, how mental sports are, and tennis is certainly one of them. That's what happens. And uh, there is always a reason why something happens and it could go back to earlier in the match. No, there's no doubt. Okay, now the Connors. Yeah, Connor's double that, bagel. That was uh, that was very very strange. Uh, I had a lot of trouble with Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy was he has beaten me at the U.S. Open in '82-'83, and uh, he, his game was giving me trouble because he could overpower me and he moved well and he I wasn't as good of a mover at that point and and uh, then all of a sudden. Earlier in '84, I started feeling better against Jimmy, and and uh, I, I I mean that match, my best surface, his worst surface. Uh, it's a little bit like my grass matches against Boris or Stefan, right? And uh, things just happened so quick. You, I didn't even know what happened. I'm watching that match. It's unbelievable. You just were doing everything right, and he was just behind every shot. Couldn't get in front of anything. Your weight of shot, the serving, just everything was fantastic. Talk about what it was like playing in that Forest Hill Stadium. You know, it, it has tremendous history. And every time I go to Westside Tennis Club, I walk up the staircase and look at the pictures and the locker room and so on and so on. And I feel the history of the U.S. Open. I did play a U.S. Open there in 1977 as a junior. Ooh, wow. I, yeah. I, lost, uh, I lost in semifinals to Van Winitsky, 7-6 in the third. <laughs> he, was a year, he was a year older and, uh, and uh, John played. He, he, uh, he played very well there and so on. And it was, uh, it was very, uh, you know, airy experience i uh, i just exchanged uh, little notes with ken rosewall uh, a couple of weeks ago when his wife unfortunately passed away and i said to him that in 1977 as a junior i played the u.s open and we stayed at westchester country club and so did he with his wife and every evening when we practiced on the course we would see him hitting balls with his wife oh, wow. wow 1977 wow. 
And just going back to Forest Hills, you had a lot of success there over the years. Won four times. And I mean, I, dare I say that that 1984 loss to McEnroe in the final was the one black mark on your resume there. What made you play so well in those confines? No, I always played well in New York. And I strongly believe whether it was Forest Hills, U.S. Open, or the Masters, I always stayed at home in Greenwich. And that made a huge, huge difference in my, my feeling well because on the days off at the U.S. Open, I didn't have to go to Flushing. And, and Forest Hills, I was 40 minutes away and, and just would warm up at home and then just go for the match and be back home for dinner. And I loved that. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And I mean, it's just so funny that you even built a tennis court to the U.S. Open specifications in your backyard. I can imagine it felt like you were literally playing at home when you went to those tournaments. Yeah, and, and when you think about it, it only makes sense, right? You get the speed the center court is not some other speed. Yeah, right. yeah, They're totally, totally. Yeah, well, well, but by the time you're playing in Forest Hills, though, those WCT events were on clay, Tournament of Champions. Yeah. Yes. Would you practice on the hard courts at home? No, I would go to the country club and practice on a hard throw. I gotcha. gotcha. Wow. It is so cool. So let's fast forward a little bit. When you see the modern game and you're coaching players like Andy Murray and Zverev and all these, you know, is it like deep inside that you see what you did to the game? Your impact of the game was way more than just winning titles. It was really a style that everybody plays now. Well, again, um, every top player plays the style which the conditions and equipment allows him. Okay? Yeah. And the strength is a huge factor in today's style. But when, uh, when I'm sitting there in the box, I'm not, uh, I'm not really thinking about anything like that. I'm working really hard. Yeah. being in the box, looking at what we have worked on and what's working, what do we need to work on again? Where are the weaknesses? How can I get them better? And that's all going through my mind. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's just another thing that's interesting to me is how Andy Murray uh, won Wimbledon under, under you or under your coaching. And this was the one slam that did evade your grasp. You say you're proud of your record there, but that had to have been super rewarding to see really uh, the guy that you're coaching, that you're pouring all of your effort into, go ahead and take the, the slam in such a historic way? Uh, I don't know that I would put it in those words. I, th I would definitely say that it was really re rewarding seeing Andy break through and start winning Grand Slams. And his first Grand Slam was the US Open in 2012. Mm -hmm. And then he wins Wimbledon in 13, and then he wins another Wimbledon in 16, two Olympic medals uh, in 12 and uh, 16. So that's, that's rewarding because the, the reason you take the job is not to get self-satisfaction that he's going to win the title I didn't win, but I take the job because I want to help him to achieve his goals, whatever they are. Yeah. Ivan, what, what makes a great coach? Good question. Uh, I think there are many, many good coaches. And uh, the one thing which, which obviously hard work, being able to analyze, being able to sell you to your player what you want to work on and how you're doing it, 
and and so on and so on but also experience i think that's where the former players and top players if they help in coaching they can they can help more than anybody else and uh, i was very fortunate and you know him well luca uh, to have tony roach oh yeah and tony has played so many major finals and winning the french and big finals of Wimbledon, big finals of the us open and australian and davis cups and so on and so on and that experience and understanding what the player goes through throughout the tournament, how they feel, and so on, and being able to talk about it to somebody who understands is uh, you can't pay enough money for that. Ivan, let's flash forward to the present day. Quarantine is obviously a crazy time just for all of us. Uh, what are you doing to really stay busy now? Well, I, I, I'm not coaching at the moment, so. Uh, I'm just uh, trying to stay fit, healthy, and uh, work on my golf game a little bit. We're uh, <laughs> in the same boat that, on that one. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, and it's, it's really funny that you mentioned that. Luke and I were talking just before you hopped on. Luke told me that you used to train by chasing after your golf balls and building up that endurance. And I just think it's funny because that's literally what I was doing yesterday in my local <laughs> park. I was hitting irons and chasing yeah. them down. <laughs> Uh, it's not a bad way to to get some exercise. Yeah, definitely, is it? definitely a good way to build up the endurance. That's for sure. But, it's it's a pleasant, your, pleasant way. Yeah, talk about your golf game a little bit. It fascinates me, and it's in actually dare I say it's inspirational to me to watch you take up golf so late in life, or relatively late in life, and then become somebody who has a zero handicap. That's just downright impressive. Well, I don't think there is much game to talk about. It's all relative, right? It may be impressive in a country club but it's not impressive on the professional level and uh, <laughs> there are so many so many good uh, players uh, in golf Come on, give yourself it's, some it's credit. you won on the celebrity tour i mean yeah. you have guys like steph curry and tony romo looking at your golf game and saying wow i wish i could do that uh, i don't know that they do <laughs> <laughs> well Ivan, i'm telling you we're out of time but i want to say you're one of the coolest cats when you're driving around with the porsche you were always so funny in the locker room. I mean, it was just an inspiration to honestly get to practice with you and get to know you. And thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me on. And thanks, uh, Luke, for all the help in the warm-ups on Sundays at the tournaments. Just before we let you go, one last quick question, because I know Luke isn't going to ask this. What was it like to train with Luke Jensen? And <laughs> I'm going to throw down a gauntlet. Who would win in a match today? Oh, well, I, I assume him being somewhat younger that he would kill me today since I don't really play tennis uh, anymore. But uh, uh, the great thing about Luke was that uh, whether I played a right-hander or left-hander, he could provide serves. And that's uh, the main thing. You can hit balls with anyone, but returning is important in tennis. And uh, he would be able to go lefty or righty for me. And uh, that was uh, amazing. Well, Ivan, thanks so much for your time. That's all the time that we have on the Forest Hills Tennis Podcast. For more great content, follow at Westside Tennis Club on Instagram and Facebook. And we'll see you next week for another awesome episode.